When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's so hard, it's so stressful, it's so painful to be ineffective in communicating with our kids. I mean, for the person said, I've told them a hundred times, I've told them a thousand times. Well, how how powerless that person feels. And from my when I've fallen into that trap, what a jerk I feel like, you know, for the umpteenth time telling my kid, you know, and, and like, why aren't they listening to me? It's what are some of your favorite go-tos of what to say to kids? My absolute favorite is that I, I love you and I'm crazy about you regardless of how, how hard you work in school, how well you perform, how well you behave. The, the unconditional expression of love and acceptance. I, I, I think that's the best message you can give a, a kid or another human being. You're listening to Ned Johnson and Dr. William Stixred on Psychologists Off the Clock. We are four clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting-edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado, and co-author of Act Daily Journal. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, co-author with Debbie on Act Daily Journal and practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. From coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. And from sunny San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, author of Be Mighty and the Big Book of Act Metaphors. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. Psychologists Off the Clock is happy to be partnered with Praxis Continuing Education. With Praxis, you can really transform your clients' lives by learning how to effectively promote lasting change with evidence-based training. And they're really the premier provider in continuing education for clinical professionals. Praxis has both on-demand courses as well as live online courses. They have beginner offerings like Act One from Matt Boone or more advanced offerings like Act Immersion with Steve Hayes. Some of their live online courses include classes in dialectical behavior therapy, superhero therapy, and act with parents. You can get a coupon code for Praxis Continuing Education on our website, offtheclockpsych.com, for some of their live offerings. And we can really attest to the quality of Praxis. We've both participated in it ourselves and have seen its benefits in our clinical work. So visit our offers page at offtheclockpsych.com. Here we are back to school, and in many ways, it's not back to normal. So we thought that we would offer you some parenting episodes to help you navigate what's been sort of an unprecedented, challenging time to be a parent during a pandemic. And I have Yael here, another favorite parenting expert of mine. (laughs) And we wanted to talk a little bit about some of the concepts that were brought up in this episode. Yeah, I think um, this episode, Diana, was so terrific. It follows up another amazing episode where you had Dr. William Stixred on to talk about the self-driven child. And I love this episode because you got into a lot of the -the on-the-ground strategies for relationship building with kids uh, in the context of building more motivation and and just, you know, helping kids be their best selves in even when things can be challenging, complicated, uncomfortable. So some of the research is showing from the APA Stress in America survey that parents are one of the groups that are most impacted by the stress of the pandemic. And as we move into fall, that stress is continuing, right, with different variants and kids that aren't vaccinated and kids going back to school and all these different transitions. And I think that what Dr. Stixred and Ned Johnson talk a lot about is this foundation of the relationship, but then also giving kids some room to be challenged. And one of the things that we talk a lot about on this show in terms of acceptance and commitment therapy is our tendency to avoid pain and the law of least effort that our brains will always take the easier path. But there's also something about the human experience, which is we really 
do find satisfaction in a little bit of a challenge and a little bit of a struggle. And sometimes parents sweep in too quickly to take that experience away from their kids. And that's where the growth happens. If we allow our kids to have a little bit of self-drivenness, that's where they're going to learn some of the skill sets that they'll need later on in life and to be able to stick with itness that's needed to be resilient. And like you're saying, it can be really helpful to remember that even though at the front end, it might look and feel pretty uncomfortable to observe and be a part of that learning process, whether it's yours or your kids, that if you can make space for it, that that is ultimately what is really good parenting. And it might not feel comfortable at first, but if you just are patient with the process, the good stuff comes. So I have a little anecdote to share around a recent trip that I took with my son where we've been practicing the self-driven child approach for years. So this poor kid, he's been, <laughs> he's been uh, the product of the self-driven child. And one of the things that we practice is that we don't pack for our kids. And so they pack for their own trips. He's been packing for his own trips probably since he was like six. And it's sort of like an iterative process. But the last time he packed, he uh, forgot his dress shirt and he wanted to go out. We went out to dinner and he, he kind of likes to get a little dressed up and he forgot oh. his dress shirt. This time he packed... And we were kind of busy. And I said, you know, you've got this, you know, what do you need? And he listed off all the things and he packed his little bag and we get on our trip. And here we are landing in the hotel and he remembered his dress shirt and his dress shoes, but he forgot his socks his underwear and his toothbrush. <laughs> and that's the that's the experience of parenting, right? Like you have to kind of give a little room for your kid to make the mistakes to learn from it. And you know, it was a little funny. We were walking around an amusement park with a dress shirt and no socks. <laughs> but I I guarantee you he will remember that the next time. And that's the um, process of parenting where you give a little wiggle room where it doesn't really matter. This is not like a life and death situation. And then we we do swoop, swoop in when it is something like substance use or self-harm. Obviously, we're not going to allow that to happen to our children, but we usually err on the side of rescuing a little too quickly. Yeah. There's there's this really nice theory of the zone of proximal development. I think the researcher is Vygotsky. And I really like this idea because it's sort of like figuring out like where your risk tolerance is and really pushing out to it. So letting your kids fail in ways that feel safe. And maybe in act terms, it would be your own zone of flexibility, like stretching out that flexibility zone. And, you know, one of the things that Ned Johnson talked about in this episode is something called self-determination theory, and it drives a lot of their work. And I thought it would be helpful to outline what self-determination theory is. It's an old theory. It comes from the 80s. But it's basically the idea that your intrinsic motivation comes from three things. It comes from relationship, which is incredibly important. It comes from autonomy, that sense of choice, which is very much part of acceptance and commitment therapy as well. It's like, do I have the choice, the freedom to choose this? or not. And then also from competency and skill building and that sense of building towards mastery, which is part of that idea of a little bit of struggle is satisfying. This is why people run marathons, because part of what's satisfying in life is kind of finding your edge of where you can go. One part of the research that I find really interesting too, is that we might think of autonomy as being uh, unrelated or or negatively correlated with competency, but actually they're highly correlated that when we connect with our kids in ways that support their agency and their skill building, it actually is quite good for our relationships. And you can think about this even like in an adult relationship, like for example, with a romantic partner, that when your partner says to you, you know, I trust you to make good decisions and huh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way. I would do it differently, but but I love that you're doing it your way, that you end up feeling much closer to them. And so that's something that we can carry into our parenting relationship, that by offering more space for our kids to make their own choices, it actually breeds more closeness, even, even though sometimes we fear that it won't. One other thing that I just wanted to suggest to listeners is that I actually just finished um, Edward uh, Dacey, who's one of the lead researchers in self-determination theory, his book, his classic book, which is called Why We Do What We Do. And it's a fascinating read. I highly recommend it. 
Ned talked a little bit about that relationship between autonomy and relationship with parents and how sometimes what we're asking our kids to do is sacrifice their autonomy so that they stay related to us and that they will choose that over their autonomy. So when we give kids the um, sense of like, I believe in you, I trust in you, it actually helps them feel connected to us and then also encourages them to move out into the world and, and take risks and learn and expand their skill sets. So I love that. Well, yeah, Al, we were going to leave folks with a little bit of a coping toolkit because, man, we could all use that right now. And maybe each of us can offer two coping skills to use as parents. If you email us at info at offtheclockpsych.com, we'll be able to send that to you. So in terms of coping skills, one of the things that Ned and Bill suggest is to pause before swooping in to kind of save your child from discomfort. And one of the things that comes up in a lot for me when I'm helping parents in the therapy room is just how impulsive that choice is. So I like to help people come up with a coping plan. So the first thing is to sort of notice what's happening in your body. So that mindful awareness of that impulse to swoop in, you know, what is it that you feel? So the question to ask yourself is what am I feeling in my body? What thoughts are going through my head? And on the coping skills worksheet, you might write that down so that you can increase your awareness of those thoughts and those feelings. And in that way, you can sort of cue yourself to the red flag for you to be swooping in too quickly. And then the next step would be to do a bit of perspective taking, which is an act process of zooming out. And sometimes when we are caught in a moment where we're kind of overwhelmed by our emotion, our attention gets really narrow and we forget the big picture. And some questions you may ask yourself is, how important is it that I step in right now? Is this a place where I could just almost sit on my hands and breathe and be in my own discomfort? So zooming out and asking yourself, how important is it? Is it to me? Is it for me to step in? And those are the things like if this is my child is at risk for his health and or her health and safety, or they may be harming someone else. Those would be the swoop in moments. And related to that, I think one of the hardest things to do is to stop an impulse without an alternative behavior to step into. And so in this kind of a coping plan, you'd want to come up with some alternative behavior. So instead of swooping in, I'm going to. And one thing that's really nice is if you can pick a behavior that's value aligned. So for example, if you're trying to model good choices for your child, what might that look like for you? Or alternatively, if your child is struggling with anxiety and you're trying not to swoop in and save them, you're probably feeling anxious. So what would be a good behavior that you could model for them in terms of managing that anxiety? And then I would say the last thing is use your values as your reinforcement. So you're more likely to do a behavior again if you reinforce it. And instead of doing sort of the negative reinforcement, which is like run away or swoop in, what we're going to do here is really highlight for yourself when you do act on your values of parenting to remind yourself, this is the type of parent that I want to be. And really let that settle into your body and your being and linger on that. Maybe even remember it later in the day of a moment where you made that choice point and you turned towards your values. Because when you repeatedly do that, you'll start to strengthen those neural connections in your brain and in your body to continue to do that behavior again. So give yourself some grace. It may be a little bit funky and wonky the first time you try this out. But as you continue to practice the skill, like any skill, like piano or guitar, you'll get better at it over time. So our four coping strategies were pause and make space for whatever is showing up in this moment. Zoom out and take perspective. Ask yourself, is this, a, is this something that I need to swoop in or is this a moment that I can do something else in? So break that repetitive pattern. And then the third aspect is choose another behavior and have a plan for what your alternative behavior is going to be. And then finally, reinforce that new behavior, reminding yourself of what your values are and how this lines up with the type of person you want to be and the type of parent you want to be and what you want to model to your kids. Please do email us for a copy of that worksheet. We'd love to share it with you and we'd love to hear how well it's working out for you. So today I have the real privilege of talking with two of my favorite experts on child psychology and parenting, Ned Johnson and Dr. William Stixred. William Stixred is a clinical neuropsychologist and faculty member at Children's National Medical Center and George Washington University Medical Center. And Ned Johnson is the founder of 
Prep Matters and the co-author of Conquering the SAT, How Parents Can Help Teens Overcome the Pressure and Succeed. And they are the authors of one of my favorite books on parenting, which is The Self-Driven Child and have a new book out that just came out called What Do You Say? How to Talk with Kids to Build Motivation, Stress, Tolerance, and a Happy Home. It's such a delight to have you back on. Wonderful to be here again. The first time you came on, it was it was William Sticks Red. It was on episode uh, 78. And as a podcast of four psychologist moms, we've done a lot of podcasts on parenting. And it really was one of my favorite uh, ones that we've done. And I really use a lot of the ideas that you talk about, things like, I love you too much to fight about, blah, 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 or it's your call. And today we have to start with the cover of your book. Because on the cover, you have these sentences with a red pen through them. And it's, is everything okay, honey? Crossed out. You need to study harder. Crossed out. I know what is best for you. Crossed out. Because I said so. Crossed out. So tell me about that. Why are those things what not to say? And what should we say to kids? Ned and I talk, talk to a lot of parents who are frustrated because they can't they can't get their kid to see, you know, I've told them a million times or, you know, I just, I've taken away everything and nothing seems to work. I can't seem to motivate him. And, you know, we just said that we're pretty familiar with things that don't work very well. And also between the two of us, we, in, in addition to having our own children, I have, a, I have kind of kids, 30 something children Ned has kind of older teenagers professionally between the two of us, we probably spent pretty close to the 65 or 70 years talking with kids one-on-one. And so we figured we, we got some pretty useful stuff to offer in terms of, of what doesn't work very well and what tends to work better. And certainly <laughs> I know better than you do. I mean, there's, that, that, that's not a very good line in, in part because we want kids, we, we, we use the line, you're, uh, you're the expert on you. I mean, the, the, we, we, we're little kids. We want to let them know nobody really knows you better than you know yourself. And, and there's things I know a lot more about something than you do, but I don't always know what's right for you. And our goal is for kids to, to basically develop a life that they want, create a self that they're happy with. Our, our job is not to make them turn out a certain way or make them believe a certain thing. Is to help them figure out who they want to be and how to create the life that they want. In this book, you focus a lot on the foundation of empathy, closeness, connection, and you write that a strong connection with a parent is the closest thing to a silver bullet for preventing mental health problems in kids. Can you talk a little bit about why you started the book there with empathy and, and closeness in terms of raising our kids? So because our first book, The Self-Driven Child, we, we, we focus so strongly on a sense of control. This is my life. You know, whose life is it? Whose responsibility is it? Whose problem is it? And it, it it's the kids. And when we decided to write a book about communicating with, with kids, we thought really the, the, the ultimate purpose of communication is building connection, is building relationship. So we decided, we decided to start there. We did this focus group. With several focus groups with middle school and high school kids. And one of the questions we asked them was, who do you feel closest to in this world? And invariably, they said it was somebody who listens, who listens to me without judging me and somebody who doesn't tell me what to do. And this made sense because of all the research that, that's done on the power of empathy for building connection and, and the validation of kids' feelings. So we decided to, 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 to start there, to start, and, and you know, as, as you, you know, I mean, these active listening, reflective listening uh, techniques have been around at least since Carl Rogers in the 1960s. I, mean, I think he was the guy who started really using that, that client-based therapy where you start out, you, you try to say, I'm really trying to understand you. So here's what, here's what I think you're saying. And there, there've been a lot of books that have tried to <laughs> teach parents how to do that. And it's hard to do it, but we thought, let's give this another shot. So, you know, we'd start with that expression, that active, reflective listening. Uh, in the book, we refer to this Israeli uh, uh, psychologist who, who uses the acronym WIGGING, which is what I got from what you said is, is, is this. Mm-hmm. And so, and then the, the validation that, you know, I, I probably feel like that too, but letting kids know that, that not trying to talk them out of their feelings, not, not try to solve, jump in and solve the problem, or you could do this or that. 
but listening respectfully and, and without judgment and, and with resisting the urge to, to, to try to fix it for them. Uh, this is what kids told us. This is, this is who I feel closest to. And let's do it. I interviewed um, Stefan Rolnick a while back, who's one of the co-founders of Motivational Interview. Oh, yeah. uh, and he talks about the fixing reflex. And actually, in the interview with him, he was talking about his own fixing reflex with, with his kid putting on his shoes and how he was trying to talk his kid out of wearing muddy shoes. And I, you know, I thought about that interview while I was reading your book because you teach motivational interviewing to parents. Some of these skills that therapists have been using for a long time, you're helping kids get motivated through this client-centered approach. So can you talk a little bit about what that would look like? What would you say as a parent to help your child, especially when they're A-motivated? Because that's, I think, we get two ends of the spectrum. We either get kids that are highly anxious or we get kids that are A-motivated and and we want to kind of help them get motivated in their lives. Right. You know, in the book, we, we, we make it clear that motivational interview requires training to use clinically, but there's just these two basic insights. Well, one is what you mentioned is this, what, what they call this writing reflex, you know, that, that there's a problem, I'm going to try to solve it for you. We're, we're, we're wired to do that. And the second brilliant insight of motivational interview is this idea that people are ambivalent about change. And it just seemed to me that, that why, why not teach parents that, that this idea that we're already, we're already teaching them about the reflective listening, which is a big part of, of, of MI. Why don't we teach them that, that, this idea that kids are ambivalent about change and that try, just, if, if trying to change other people always backfires, it always just gets resistance. And why don't we teach them that, that, that if you listen respectfully, and then if you listen for that change talk, you know, what, what MI calls change talk, that... Uh, you don't pounce on it, but then you you, you, can, you can reflect back. And, and the idea is that parents can use these tools to help their kids d- d- discover their own internal motivation. So um, what would that what would that sound like? Say, give me an example of say you're working with a child that um, doesn't want to do their homework. Ned, you you work a lot in this department with the testing of kids. How would you work with use these sort of motivational interviewing skills with with a kid that doesn't want to do their homework or is, you know yeah tapped out. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, gosh, this homework is so stupid. I don't even say well, why, why I want to do it anyway, right? And we can jump into, <laughs> sweetheart, no, this is really important. And, and I know it's not easy, but you really need to do, you know, and and the kids will just argue the other side and, 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 and really not have eyes open to the thing being really stupid. You can say, well, gosh, you, you sure sounds sure seems like this is pretty frustrating to you, and you and you really really don't want to do it, you know. And I can I can get how I wouldn't want to do something if it were if it were pretty dull. And parents think that that's going to lead kids to to then well, it's okay, then I don't have to do it. And but you can say, you know, it seems like it's pretty dumb. But but I I would have I'd I'd like to think there's probably some reason why your teacher gave it to you, and I, I I'm not quite sure what that what that is. Um, but I'd love to talk about that. I had what I consider a, a cr- profound parent win this past year. My daughter had 14 months of school on Zoom, which is just the worst, right? And so, like all parents, I was kind of watching her do school or perhaps more accurately not do school, right? And it's hard, right? Because I'm, you know, we're thinking, concerned about it too. And she would come to me oftentimes, I'd be having breakfast, she'd roll into the in the kitchen and say, you know, do I have to go to school today? And for years, you know, because walking the walk of the self-driven child, I said, well, so I, obviously I can't make you go to school, right? You know, you can just you, pretend like in front of the computer and play and play Fortnite or Xbox or in your case, Minecraft all day long. And what, what am I, there's nothing, I can, I got my own work to do. And, 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 but then when I, what I, in the middle of writing this book, I said, but I also can't tell you that you don't have to go to school because it's not my school. I'm not your teacher and I can't let you off the hook, you know, and, and I can't tell you that this isn't important to you. Only you can figure that out. And she gave me the harum face. And I said, let me, let me get my hunch is that you're hoping that I was telling you that you didn't have to go to school so that you'd be off the hook. Right. And said, so, but I just I can't I can't do that. This is your education. And, and, and it's really I, the reasons why going to Zoom school is just a disaster. But I'm pretty sure there are also reasons why, you know, you've seen your friends and maybe keeping up with work. There's probably some value to that. And the idea behind this is that for folks to identify and ideally articulate their articulate their own reason for doing a thing or for not doing a thing or for changing 
way more powerful than if I were trying to enumerate all the reasons why it was so darn important for her to do it. Because she has a brain that's way faster than mine. And she, for every idea that I posited why, she would come up with two why not. And it'd be like playing whack-a-mole. And no, no one's going to win that. No one's going to win that battle. I love that. You're giving an example of how you use this idea of parent consultant in your book. And you talk about these three components of being a parent consultant in terms of offering, but not forcing wisdom, encouraging kids to make their own decisions and letting kids solve their own problems. And when you're doing that, and when you're describing that in the book, Dr. Stixrod, you also talk about what's happening in the brains of kids when they're actually going through that decision-making of problem solving. So can you talk to us about why also it's healthy in terms of the development of their brain? There's an article that came out a couple of years ago uh, written by Martin Seligman and Steve Mayer, who pioneered the, the work on learned helplessness. And the article is called Learned Helplessness at 50. What did we get right? What did we get wrong? And basically what they concluded was that the dogs were in a cage, you would get shocked repeatedly and then wouldn't, wouldn't bother to try to escape. It's not that they learned helplessness. It's that they didn't learn a sense of control. And so Seligman eventually got into studying people and then eventually as you know, created the field of positive psychology. Steve Mayer has continued to work with rodents and his basic paradigm is rat A and rat B are, are, are in a plexiglass cage, tails outside the cage with electrode on them, little wheel inside the cage. Rat A gets shocked, the tail gets shocked. It's not painful, but it's annoying. So he, he discovers if he turns the wheel, the shock stops. Rat B gets shocked turns the wheel, nothing happens. It, he doesn't get, his shock doesn't stop until rat A turns the wheel. And what happens is that when, when rat A is turning the, the, the wheel, that his prefrontal cortex activates. And when the, for, for the prefrontal cortex activates, it dampens down the stress response. So the, his, it's not as stressful because you go into coping mode. And what happened with rat A is he learned, I can control a stressful situation. So even when, the, when the, eventually when they, 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 they uh, the wheel was disconnected from the electrode, that it didn't stop the shock, he'd still go into coping mode. You put him into a cage with a big scary rat, he'd go into coping mode as opposed to whimpering or attacking. And Meyer has said that it's that sense of control that inoculates you from the harmful effects of stress. And so that's what we want when kids have a problem. I mean, we suggest that the kid comes home with a problem, whether it's a third grade girl who didn't get invited to a birthday party and all her other friends did, or a 10th grade boy who comes home and just got dumped by his girlfriend or didn't get to make the basketball team. We want to remind ourselves whose problem is it? Because when they're stressed, ideally, their prefrontal cortex activates to try to figure out how to solve it. When it activates, it dampens down the stress response they go into coping mode. And that's what trains the brain to go into coping as opposed to, to avoiding or, or freaking out. And that's what we want for kids. That's what builds resilience. You know, that, that, as Ned says, you know, it's, it's that adversity with support and time to recover that builds what we call high stress tolerance resilience. And you also write about how brains are developed based on how they are used. So if your child is grappling with problem solving, then they're actually laying down some of the myelin sheaths of the neurons and some of those connections in the brain to become better problem solvers, as opposed to well, parents taking that from them. Okay, completely. And that's, we talked about in the first book about decision-making. I mean, that, that the, the, the pioneering work of, of Damasio about demonstrating that decisions are, are really hugely emotional as opposed to, to logical. And the good decision makings require you to pay attention to emotions. And so we, we want kids from the time they're little to be, have that experience of accessing their own emotions, you know, and, and triggering the, the, these emotional centers in the brain that get integrated with the rational decision, uh, decision making processes in the prefrontal cortex, you know, that brain that works in a more integrated way where we can pay attention to our gut and then also kind of see, plan out how, how that works in real life. So we just think that this, this kind of approach is really, really does promote really healthy brain development. Tea drinking is a ritual that I do throughout my day. I often pour a cup of tea between clients to slow down and ground myself. And I end the day with a cup of tea in hand while reading with my kids. That's why when we had the opportunity to partner with The Art of Tea, it felt like a perfect fit. The Art of Tea is an award-winning organic tea company based in Los Angeles on a mission to impact as many lives as possible through healthy and sustainable blends. 
As a mom and organic gardener, I value that the art of tea sources their ingredients from family-run farms. And as someone whose love language is gift giving, I'm so excited to give their gift box set of a tea, candle, and journal as a gift. My favorite blend is Bright Eyed. It's an Ayurvedic blend of turmeric, ginger, and cinnamon that's earthy and savory and spicy. And it's a perfect way to awaken me and give me some energy without caffeine. So use the discount code of OFFTHECLOCK20 and you'll receive 20% off your entire purchase at theartoftea.com from now through October 31st, 2021. Enjoy your cut. So I'd love to talk with you, Ned. You're a test prep specialist and probably work with a lot of high-intensity parents that have very good intentions of wanting their kids to have a successful career. I think three, three or four. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> good intentions. Um, and at the same time, what I what I notice in, in my practice, I work a lot um, with college students, is either folks that are kids that are so stressed out that they're not enjoying their lives, right? Or, or they're so anxious that, and so perfectionistic that become quite rigid or kids that have kind of given up. And one of the things that I appreciate about your work is that you look at achievement as just one part, one piece of the pie, that achievement isn't all of the pie in terms of the health and well-being of children. So how do you talk with parents about, about that? And then also, how do you help parents talk with their kids about that? Well, it depends, you know, it depends on the kid, you know, the parent, whether they're receptive to it. Um, but, but generally, I start with the approach with the assumption that the parent wants the best thing for their kid, right? But they're using methods that are ineffective because they don't know methods that are more effective, right? And and they're gonna do something because sitting on your hands and biting your tongue while we're watching your kid go through, and particularly if they're struggling, it's just, it's a really, it's really hard for most folks to do. And so when I talk with them, I, I, I tend to be a little bit indirect and, and rather than saying, you're freaking your kid out, it, it'd be simply like, well, you know, I mean, Susie is at a pretty intense school. And as you know, she's, she's really academic and the group she runs with, I mean, they're also darn competitive. And I, my hunch is that she's got just more stress coming into her system than, than we'd like. And the parents say, oh, you have no idea. Right. And, it's, and so, and so what, I, what I think to be helpful is if we can help her sort of pull, be a stress sponge and pull some of the, you know, stress out of her um, because we can't, we're not probably going to be able to change the culture of her school. And then we'll, so what does that look like? And then and you, you, I try to get them to, you know, to, to buy in as allies a little bit. Um, but it also, uh, some of the things that are in our book, we talk with them about as well. I see so many kids who don't come to their parents with problems because they're afraid that their parents are going to overreact. And that's just a hard place to be because the parents want to help, right? And the kids, when they're when push comes to shove, feel like you know, home's not a safe base. Well, what do we what do we do with that? Um, I'm awfully good at figuring out a, a, a path that we're going to get there. I don't try to talk people out of the goal that they want to get to, but sort of the, the how uh, the how do we get there? You know, I spend an enormous amount of time talking with kids about sort of Plan B thinking and about you know sleep um, and and sort of less is more about not, you know, about the benefits of, of committing to fewer things rather than trying to be perfectionistic and do, and do everything. And when I, when I can, I enlist their parents. I mean, I tend to, frankly, I spend more time talking with kids than I do with their parents most of the time. Um, unless, you know, unless I'm talking in a school, in a school setting, um, you know, parents, I'm old enough at this point that a lot of parents, um, sort of hand me their kid and their credit card and trust that it's all going to come out well enough. And what's just so interesting is, as Bill points out is I have a career of helping kids do better on tests by honestly making them care less about tests. Well, that this perfectionistic must be perfect kind of thinking, it actually undermines performance because, you know, with perfectionism, you, you don't see feedback. You don't see mistakes as feedback and as an opportunity to get better. You see it as the sky is falling and I have to do everything not to make a, not to make a mistake in the future. But, but I want to work with kids. I'll say, look, I'm giving you problems and I know you're going to get some of them wrong. And that's by design. And they look at me like, what? I said, 
look, I could give you 25 practice. I can give you 100 problems and, and you could get them all right. But that's busy work. I mean, you know, who needs friggin' worksheets, right? That doesn't, that's not engaging. I respect you way too much to do that. But I want you to, I want you to struggle with these. And when you don't know what, what the answer is, put a big question mark out this. But don't, don't ask your mom or dad or your math teacher. Don't Khan Academy. I don't, I'm not interested in what you know how to do. I'm interested in what you don't know how to do. And at least in the little space that we work in, it's it's a it's a space where it's a different from my perspective. It's a different learning environment than than maybe they've had in, in so much of their other parts of their lives. In part because I'm not their teacher. I don't grade them. I'm not mom or not dad. I have no dog in this fight apart from what's good for you. And it's a really neat thing. I mean, I, in a perfect world, every young person has a, an aunt or an uncle or a coach or a test prep th- nerd, you know, who can who can really take an interest in them. And have the, the performance be an, an outflow of it rather than having the performance be the primary goal, which seems paradoxical. But I've been awfully successful helping people by, by, by really taking this approach with them. You've written about how your job is really not to motivate kids, but to help them find their motivation. And your book, a lot of the work in it is about, I think, in sort of helping kids get their own intrinsic motivation, their own inner drive. And part of that involves listening to kids and also having conversations with kids about what brings them meaning and brings them joy. We were chatting about ACT earlier and how when you have your own inner reasons why, they can show up when you've got nothing left. They can motivate you when you are completely spent, right? As a parent, people know this, you know, I, I, I'll i take care of my kids in the middle of the night because I have a why behind it, right? So how do you work with kids in, in helping them find their own pursuit of happiness and, and their own inner intrinsic motivation? Well, well, gosh, I mean, it's a great, it's a great question. And the, and the short answer is I put so much energy into being interested in the kid. And whatever it is the kid wants, right? I mean, I have a boy I'm working with. <laughs> I worked with his mom, actually, and now it's her son. And, and she went to the most tightly wound, you know, private girls' school here in D.C. And now her son is incredibly, incredibly, incredibly anxious. And I've been listening and listening and listening. And we're doing this all by Zoom. He's up in New York trying to find an angle. And he finally said, well, and my brothers are coming back on Thursday. And, I'll, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm, I'm making risotto. And I said, Wait, say that your, your, your brother said, you make risotto? He's like, oh yeah. I'm like, well, tell me more about that. Well, he's this total foodie, this total, you know, food nerd. And, and I had no idea and I had to wait for it, right? And so it's now that, I, so tell me, and I found this recipe and now we have some common ground. And I know just enough about basketball and lacrosse and cooking and a little bit about everything. So that one, so that I have a vernacular to, to, to really use pro- appropriate metaphors for test prep, but also because it's a painful thing for kids to feel like they're the sum total of their GPA, SAT scores and where they go to college. No wonder they're stressed about those things. And I take an interest in everything. There's a story in the book. I had this girl who I asked her at the start of her senior year, what do you most do? What do you like to do most in the world? And she said, honestly, I have no idea. I spend so much of my time trying to meet other people's expectations of me. I have no idea. And I started poking, you know, just listening, listening, listening. Turns out she was a fashion kid. There was a, they have this thing at her school where they design clothes and then have a runway. And so I found out from her friends when this was going to be. And I showed up there and I ended up sitting directly behind her mom. And I brought a big thing of flowers. And here's the thing that it was just a kick to the gut. While this girl's friends were modeling her clothes, her mom was on her phone, not taking pictures, but looking at her phone. And I thought, my goodness. Because she's had a drip feed of the things that matter to you don't matter to me or, as your parent. Uh, but but and so again, to your, your point, does it have to be a tutor? My goodness, no. It can be your older sister. It can be your aunt, your uncle, your pastor, your soccer coach. But in a perfect world, it's someone who's not just in, in your, you know, it's enough your pastor just in your interest in your faith, but your soccer coach and your soccer coach, not just interested in your performance on the field, but in your faith. Because when we, when, we, when we align with our values, as you know better than anyone, but also when we have as broad a foundation about the things that make us us, then a test or a, te- a college admissions or a stupid SAT score still matters, but it matters a whole lot less. And there's a whole lot less sting if we underperform and we can have so much more courage going into it because this is just one part of me. 
Yeah, it made me think about Alison Gopnik's book about carpenters and gardeners. And so many of us as, as parents want to be carpenters where we're sort of chipping away at our children and forming them into something as opposed to gardeners, which are really just creating really nourishing soil for our kids to grow in. And one of the suggestions that you make around building closeness was really eye-opening to me because I was reflecting on how maybe COVID has impacted this for folks. It was just spending one-on-one time with your kids, staying close to them physically, expressing that you're interested in what they're interested in, and then having family rituals. And a lot of times I think when we're, we're busy, families are, are overtaxed and very busy. We think we need to do all these special things to, I don't know, to create bonding, but it's just the simplicity of how are we spending our time with them? And are we showing interest in just the day-to-day stuff? Well, I got my PhD in child psychology and started my own practice. People assumed that I knew everything there was to know about childbearing. And I didn't learn anything useful in my, in my doctoral program as a parent. And so I, what I had to do is I had to read stuff that's written for parents. And uh, you know, I wrote this book that is called How to Really Love Your Child. And so how do you let your kid know that you really love them? And, and one of the main ways is, just, is simply spending time alone. And, and, and because you can go out to dinner with another couple and you get to know them somewhat, but you really get to know them, really get to know them when, when, when you break up and, it's, and you just talk one-on-one. And so what I, I have two kids and, and I knew this when they were pretty little. So the time they're four or five. I said, there's 168 hours in a week and I want to, I need at least one alone with each one of you. And I spent those two hours a week with my kids until they went to college. And I think that, and now, I mean, certainly spending time, just a little bit of time without your phone. So many, so many kids tell us that I have trouble getting my parents full attention because they're on their phone. They're listening while they're on their phone. Or spending time with them on their phone. (laughs) Tell me about what's in your phone that you love. Show me. Because I think that's the paradoxical thing that you offer with technology. And I I was just sharing, we did an Instagram live together and I was sharing about how you got me actually going in and learning about Minecraft. And I I actually, I'm kind of impressed by the whole thing at this point of how there's this whole building component of it. But it was the idea of me, instead of cursing my kids' technology use, actually getting curious about my kids' technology use and why it matters to him. And I really learned about some aspects of him that I can get why he gets it. He likes it so much. He likes being with his friends. He likes building things. Uh, He likes problem solving. And those are all some nutrients I want to continue to grow in his garden and support. And and when we come back to motivational interviewing and that ambivalence, I mean, I I asked a group of of ninth graders in, in Dallas a few years ago, how many of you feel that you're on your phone or in front of a screen too much? Every single kid raised their hand. Every single kid. It's not like the kids are lost, that I'm wasting a lot of time if they're spending too much time on social media or video games. It's not like that they aren't aware. But the more we say, no, 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 you need to stop that. I'm pulling the plug on this. The more that they argue the other side about how great it is. And if you just change the energy, and you say, help me understand what, what this is so cool about it. In a non-judgment, you, you seek to understand as opposed to, to judging first. You seek to understand, then we then actually think that things are calmer, kids are not resistant, and kids will start to, to, to make that kind of comment, well, I love this game, but it, does, it is a huge time suck. But that happens all the time. You know, if, if we change the energy and we listen and try to understand, as motivational interviews you teach, kids will eventually start to voice that other side of their ambivalence, that, that change talk. It, 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 so it's a huge time suck. Uh, so what, 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 how would your life be different if you, only, if you spent half the time on Minecraft or whatever it is that, that you're spending now? What, 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 what would that be like? We had that kind of conversation with them. But so much of, of the focus of, of our new book is changing the energy in ways that, that, from ways that are unproductive ways where we have, actually have a chance of connecting with our kids and influencing them. And for the parent, that's really hard. So you do also talk about parents needing to do their own work, right? Around their own anxiety and how hard it is to hold children lightly, to not just bubble wrap our kids or sweep in and solve it for them. It requires a lot of work on the part of the parent to just sort of go for this ride that's really twisty and turny and not knowing what's coming up next without taking control. 
And I also really appreciate how you you bring that up and then also bring up this non-anxious presence and how to how to model that as a parent. Can you talk a bit about that? In our first book, we, we said that when, when our kids um, that when our kids are having a tough time, our most important work is on ourselves. You know, and 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 we talk about in in the same chapter that we talk about um, motivational interviewing, and then the idea that you really you can't you don't try to change somebody. You know, you have more power if you don't try to change them. And, and we would talk about this new space program, uh, the Elliot Leibitz's uh, space program out of Yale, the supportive parenting of anxious childhood emotions, and, and the the idea that with parents become affirming of kids and they make a supportive statements. I know that makes you really anxious, but I'm hundred percent confident you can handle it. And I'm hundred percent confident you can handle it. Not, but, but, and, <laughs> and, and yeah. And I I'm aware that the way I was accommodating your anxiety in the past, it, it just makes it worse. So I'm not going to do it anymore. When parents do that without making any attempt to change the kid, it's as effective in reducing the kid's anxiety as, as CBT is. And but we learned that. We thought, you know, let, let's really focus on this idea that if we change our steps and, and without trying to change our kid, we, we can be much more effective as parents. So most of the work is on ourselves. Some of it's communication. Some of it is emotional regulation. It's managing our own, as you said, Diana, it's managing our own anxiety because ideally in any kind of system, the people in charge are serve can serve as a non-anxious, non-fearful, non-emotionally reactive presence. I mean, think how wonderful it is if you have a boss who you screw something up, who doesn't just lay into you, who could be understanding and help you problem solve. Uh, and, and in a family, it's wonderful if parents can be calm and, and can be not highly emotionally reactive. So that when a kid has a problem, he can come to the parents and not wor- and not worry the first thing that happens is they're going to get yelled at. Yeah. The parents are first going to try to understand. You know, it's sort of like on an airplane, whenever it gets turbulent, I don't look at the other passengers. I look at the flight attendant. The flight attendant is cool as a cucumber during that turbulence. And it makes me feel, you know, they've got this. We've got this. Uh, fine. And so, yeah. It, it, I was going to say in our first book, there's a story. My daughter, we had a one of those wonderful ground stops for three hours on the tarmac flying out of Chicago. And I was, and my daughter was maybe a year old and she's, she's, we describe her as sensitive to secondhand stress. And so they come to a, and the uh, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to be sitting here for the next, uh, you know, three weeks or so, right? And you can feel everybody on the tubes like, oh my gosh. My daughter, of course, has no idea what's going on, but she can feel everyone else's stress and she just, ah! and I am the most, I do the historically bad job soothing her because I'm so worried that I'm going to be that guy. Right. And and I needed someone's grandmother who was like 80 years old to be like, sweetheart, there, 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 you know, and it's it's hard to do, but it's incredibly powerful. And you're exactly right. All of our kids to will will look at look at the situation, but then they'll also look to mom or dad and say, How do you think this is gonna go? Right. And if if the if the sense is this is gonna go well enough, you know, then then they, then the kid, it's easy for the kid to believe this is gonna go well enough too. And sometimes it doesn't go so well. So that's the other part of it is that I think as a parent, especially during this year and a half, I've been hearing more and more from parents that have just lost it. Like they have lost it. Their stress has hit a limit and they couldn't manage it. And that's where the close relationship comes in because then we can talk our way through that, that, you know, they, even parents lose it sometimes. And I love how you you model that in your book as well. It's just when you have this type of relationship with your kids and you can navigate whatever waters show up. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm 71 years old and I, I can't, I don't really remember specific incidents, but I remember when I was in my forties, I could still remember specific times that my father had gotten pissed at me. And then and at, at that night, he'd come into my bedroom and said, son, I, I, I want to apologize. I really re- overreacted. I had a really stressful day at work. I, I'm crazy about you. And I just, and I just remembered how much it made me feel loved and respected. Um, and so I, I think, you know, we, we under stress, we do things with it that, <laughs> that, that are not necessarily advisable. And as long as we have that kind of relationship where it's, we, we apologize and we, we repair our relationship, it's all good. And I love that too, Bill, because it's such an effective modeling of, I'm not a perfect person, 
but I can make things better when I make a mistake. And you as a kid, you don't have to be perfect either with me, with your friends. And, and, and here's a tool for if when you make a mistake and you hurt someone's feelings, here's, here's how you, 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 you mend that, right? And, and move forward together yeah. in, in a way that's yeah. better. I'm, just, I'm going to be evaluating a, a girl um, in, in a couple of weeks who uh, has been very perfectionistic, always a straight-A student, extremely uh, high-pressure school. She's, she, I think she's 15 now. And she's just she's psych, had a psychiatric hospitalization in the spring, has, has a lot of anxiety, OCD, depression. She, she made a suicide attempt, so she's in, in, in DBT right now. The parents are getting training from the DBT people on validation. And the mom said that recently this girl was really upset about something, came to the parents, and the parents validated her feelings as opposed to telling her what to do or solving the problem for her. And the girl wrote the parents an email the next morning and said, I can really tell that you're changing. This helps me so much. And it just, it just made us feel like, like this kind of work of focusing on how, how do we talk to our kids? How do we respond to them? It really, it makes a huge difference and it's not too late. You know, it's, it's not like you have to start when they're two to do this. You know, you can always repair. We can always go back and, and, and heal things. And with, with DBT, Marsha Linehan is such a master of validating. Um, she's validating the things that many people would say you can't validate. Like you don't want to validate someone that's, you know, actively suicidal because it might make them more suicidal. But her form of validation is revolutionary because it starts with just being present and then it moves into these six deeper levels of things like um, validating what is valid, that, that your feeling is valid, even though your thoughts that led to this feeling may have been, you know, not the most helpful thought to, to take you down that road, what you're feeling is valid. And the radical genuineness of just being human and showing up as a parent and, and being radically genuine with your kids. I think a lot of these principles that have been kind of tucked away in therapy and psychology and in treatment centers, you're kind of like digging them up a little bit in this book. You're using some stuff from positive psychology and Seligman's work and motivational interviewing and cognitive behavioral approaches. They're actually just really practices of, of how to relate to people well and be effective as a, as a human. And we don't have to wait until we have a mental health concern to use them. We can use them right now as, as parents and in our own lives. I, I, it's, it's so true. And I, I was trained, you, I think on our earlier conversation, use the term paradoxical. And, and I, I, I'm old enough that I was trained in paradoxical family therapy. Uh, and, and so the, the idea of being able to do something that seems counterintuitive and having a, a good result, you know, so I, 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 I became pretty comfortable early on just saying, I know I can't make you do that. I mean, if my kid fought me on something, I say, obviously, I couldn't make it. I'm not trying to force you to do that. I, if I did, you'd beat me. You just fall. And I prescribe all the ways he could beat me. You could just fall on the floor. You could start screaming. You could pee in your pants. You know, I, I, I can't make you do this. And I'm, I'm not going to I'm not trying to make you do this. And I think it'll go better if we kind of work together on this like that. And just and initially, when I, when I first admitted, I know I can't make you do this. If I felt a little powerless. But eventually, it's so empowering. We just give up the illusion that using force with kids ever works. It works in, in, in a productive way. And in, 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 in one of our chapters, in the chapter on being a parent consultant, we talk about the language of no force. I love Ross Green's line with resistant kids. I'm not going to try to use the force of my will to make you do things. And I think that what actually happens, not only do you get freed up as a parent, your kid starts doing stuff. When the pandemic hit, we started homeschooling our kids and I you know, was pulling my hair out. How am I going to get my kid to do the thing that they were doing in school? And I did this give up approach. One of our first assignments with my eight-year-old was, okay, make a museum of all of your favorite things, catalog it and take us on a tour. And I, that was, that was his assignment for the week. That's all I did. And he spent, he was so engaged in that project. He was writing things. He was doing all the things that you're supposed to do in school. He was even presenting to people, uh, all the things you're supposed to do in school, but it was self-driven. It was intrinsic and it was about what mattered to him. So I had to do such little work. And I think as parents, we have to kind of step out of the paradigm of what it's supposed to or should look like and into really listening to our kids of what, of what they care about. And all of a sudden they're off to the races. If you give them a little bit of that control and power. 
And it's such a good point. And I love that story. And, and, you know, part of the thing that's part of the thing we're so excited about in writing this book and bringing, as you, as you point out, you know, the collective wisdom, so many people have spent careers thinking about these things is it's so hard. It's so stressful. It's so painful to be ineffective in communicating with our kids. I mean, for the person said, I've told them a hundred times, I've told them a thousand times. Well, how, how powerless that person feels. And from my, when I've fallen into that trap, what a jerk I feel like, you know, for the umpteenth time telling my kid, you know, and like, why aren't they listening to me? It's like, well, why aren't I listening to them? Because if they happen to listen to me the first 99 times, they're telling me this isn't what I want to do. And so you really have to, you have to turn up the volume to 11, right? To this time, I really mean it, right? And because we're such, so, such fans of self-determination theory and trying to foster autonomous or intrinsic motivation, you realize when you tell the kid the 300th time and the kid finally does it, what they're doing is sacrificing their autonomy, a foundational psychological need, in order to maintain the relatedness with you as mom or dad. Because at some level, it's really scary to not have the connection. And, but it's, it, 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 it shouldn't, shouldn't be, and it doesn't have to be, a trade-off between relate, relatedness and autonomy, and probably co- competency as well. If you, if you, without me, this wouldn't get done. And this just and and so we want kids to be as successful as they can be. We want parents to be able to share their wisdom and their advice and, and have it really be considered and in a perfect world applied. But we but we know that when there was so many people who are estranged. I mean, gosh, there's a David Brooks article a couple of weeks ago that 27% of adults are estranged from at least one parent in their family. Think, like, my goodness, there's got to be a better way. And so this book is really about the how of communicating effectively because it's so stressful and so painful and in some cases so estranging if we're ineffective in how we communicate with our kids. In the book, you give really specific dialogues that um, around everything from sleep conversations to conversations about technology. Um, and you you actually lay it out like this is what you would say if your kid said this and this is what you would not say. Can you, um, can you, as we're sort of starting to close here, can you give maybe just a few statements of, of what to say to kids? Like what, what are some of your favorite go-tos of what to say to kids for each of you? My absolute favorite is that I, 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 I love you and I'm crazy about you regardless of how, how hard you work in school, how well you perform, how well you behave, that, that and and the, the unconditional expression of love and acceptance. I, I I think that's the best message you can give a, a kid or another human being. And and so often we, we talk. There's a book. There's a chapter in a book about expectations. And you know, some parents say, "Well, I don't." I tell them you don't have to get all A's, but you always have to do your best. And I I, I like to say, "I love you as much if you don't if you, if you do a half-assed job." And I think that that, that unconditional love is more likely to to create somebody who has that healthy drive to just for excellence. And it, that, that, then this more conditional, I approve of you as long as you're trying your hardest kind of idea. So for, for me, that, that's my go-to. And, and the second is, I love you too much to fight with you about whatever it is. I mean, my relationship is more, is more important. And I'll be assertive. And I'm not going to let you just gonna run the family. I'm not, and I'm not going to do things that I don't feel are right but I'm not going to fight with you uh, about stuff because my relationship with you is more important than what you do this with. Well, that, that statement we could use with pretty much any relationship, our, our partner, our parents, <laughs> our, our planet, right? The, United, the divisions in the world, right? Um, how about for you, Ned? What are your favorites? Well, I'd, I'd, I'd add to that because we talked about values and, and communicating that, that we're more than just our grades or test scores and where we get to college. Uh, things like, oh, I love watching you play soccer. You know, it's so fun to watch you take such enjoyment from playing Fortnite with your friends. I love when you play music, even if you're terrible, because this is saying that the, the, the things that matter to you matter to me. Right. And we want to have those connections. But, you know, because you talked earlier about the, you know, the, the, the carpenter. Right. You know, we have this metaphor in our first book about that. So many parents are like Edward Scissorhands. They're sort of trying to make bonsais out of their children. But we don't know what kind of plant they're going to be. You know, Bill, Bill makes a point that one of the great joys of, of raising teenagers is every day watching them figure out and try to, and to decide who they want to be. 
And so we don't know where they're going to end up. And so just, I love watching you do whatever. And the last two little pieces are, are, are things that really aren't what we say to kids, but, it, but just a couple little nuggets that I enjoy. One is that I make a, I'm incredibly conscious of my words when I'm talking with someone else on the phone or talking with someone when my when there's any chance at all that my kids are in earshot but they but they're not in the room because I think it's really easy for kids to say well mom you dad you have to say that because that's just your job you don't really believe that mom but if my daughter hears me talking to my in-laws what I'm saying yeah man she just did the coolest thing last week it must be valid if she, if she doesn't believe that I know that she can be anywhere nearby and then the last thing is we had a, a, a conversation the other day with a, a, a parent who's saying, you know, I, I try to engage them. I, I try to validate, I try to show empathy and they just don't want to hear it. I don't want to have that conversation. And some of it is just honest to gosh, how we look at people, right? When my daughter, she was full school refusal for three months of eighth grade. I get teary every time I think about it. It's just a really hard time for her. And everything that she was w that makes a kid happy in eighth grade was just hard for her. And so it was hard for me as her dad to watch her struggle. Mm, for people who are listening to this, I'm tearing up. And she, and, and, but I made this effort, the one when she'd walk in the room to, to, to put down my phone, but also just to, to kind of look at her like, like the sun has risen and wow. And, and not hopefully not in a way that's completely daffy, but just like, as Bill would say, you're a joy creating organism and you bring so much joy to me. And so sometimes it's our words, but so much of it is just the energy. So what do you say boils down to, I love you and I trust you to make the decisions for your life and I'm here to be with you. And that is a powerful approach to not only have with our children, but also to have with ourselves. Actually, a lot of the things that you talk about parents to tell their children are, are the same approach that we should have with our, our own selves in terms of our own intrinsic motivation and um, tapping into what, what's important to us and how we want to live our lives that are aligned with our own personal values. And where do you learn that? You learn that as a kid um, from how people have fostered that in you? Well, that's true. I mean, so certainly we, we, we talk to ourselves and we talk to our kids oftentimes in ways that we wouldn't talk to anybody else, you know, in, in more critical, harsh way, ways. And, and certainly there's a lot, there's a lot of overlap. Absolutely. And at the end of every chapter, you also do a remember what it's all about, which I just love because Oftentimes at the end of my day, one of my bedtime practices before bed, instead of thinking about everything that went wrong for the day, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, um, I do a little rehearsing of what was my most meaningful moment of the day. And then I try and like really remember that moment because I want to just have that downloaded into my, my being. And then I also know yeah. if I... If I think about that at the end of the day, then probably the next day I'll be thinking about, oh, is this a meaningful moment that I'm going to remember later? So oftentimes those meaningful moments have to do with our kids and they're really simple ones, like holding your baby when they're right out of the bath and just having that quiet time before bed <laughs> with reading your child to your child or the moment when, you know, something just was really sweet to remember what it's all about. So for you uh, in having written this book, and hoping to spread it to lots of people that need it. What do you want to remember in terms of what it's all about for you? For me, what, what, what it's all about. Most nights when I go to bed, I have a little practice where, where I ask for kind of guidance to be so that I may radiate peace, love, happiness, and courage. The world has enough suffering. And, and I, for, for me, I don't want to add unnecessary suffering to the world. And so I, I, I personally think that I, I, I've been practicing transcendental meditation for 47 years and want to be able to radiate that, that kind of calm and, 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 and courageous view of life as opposed to a fearful one. And what's really all about for me is, is kind of development, that, that human development direction of enlightenment. Uh, and, and also I'll just say that accepting the world as it is. And I, I want to learn more about ACT, about the acceptance part, uh, because um, so much of it, probably most of our suffering in the world is based on not accepting the world as it is and thinking that we have to change it before we can feel better. And there's so much evidence that actually, if we accept the world as it is, we make peace with it. We're much more adept at changing. Yeah, that's beautiful. I think you already do know a lot about the acceptance part because it's what you teach and what you preach and what you practice in your work. And it is our, really our, a lot of our freedom is just letting go of trying to change our children, 
change ourselves, the self-improvement project that makes us feel terrible. Uh, our children aren't a self-improvement project either. And then what is it all about for you? Well, for, for me, what it's, it's all about are, 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 are two things. One, paying attention to what really makes us happy. And we, we actually talk about in the uh, chapter in the book about the difference between pleasure and happiness. And a couple thoughts have just been bouncing through my head the past couple months. One, it occurred to me that the thing that makes me happiest is when I help people. And that may not be true for everyone. But it, you know, but it's really to, to really figure out what that core value is to you, because then you, you organize your life around that. And the other thing that occurred to me last night, you know, Bill and I have, have had all this, this just wonderful support about our book. And I just found myself writing email after email and text and text to people. I'm so grateful for your help. And I, it occurred to me, the more grateful I am, the happier I am. And as a parent of two lovely, lovely kids, you know, I am so happy and so grateful to have people in my life who I, who I just adore, warts and all, because we're all, you know, none of us is perfect. And, and so for, for me, and I think the message we come through in the book over and over is that we, when, we, when we can value their relationship with our kids and, and be as close to them as we can, even when things are hard, I mean, what's the point of life if you don't have relationships that are meaningful to you? Wonderful. So gratitude and, um, and appreciating the relationship that you have right here available to you. Well, thank you for your time and your wisdom here and uh, go get, what do you say? It's, it's an incredible book. Uh, as if it start with, uh, you can do both, get, get them as a pair the self-driven child and the, what do you say? Cause it's, it's how do you apply the self-driven child? So thank you for your time. It's been a delight and pleasure to be with you. You're wonderful, Diana. I agree more. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. If you enjoy our podcast, you can help us out by leaving a review or contributing on Patreon. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and you can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'd like to thank our strategic consultant, Michael Harold, our dissemination coordinator, Katie Rothfelder, and our editorial coordinator, Melissa Miller. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources page of our webpage, offtheclockpsych.com. Okay, so much technological difficulty. You are so cool under pressure. Holy smokes.